Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Republicans have long grumbled that the ABA has a liberal bias, but four recent rejections of Trump nominees have pushed things to a boil. We'll be joined later in the show by senior reporter Michael McInerney to talk us through the battle lines forming over the nominees. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about some of the unusual things that have been flagged relating to one of those judicial picks. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey. Wow, Bill fell out of a plane, uh, but I'm but I'm still here. Hey. Like, he's experimenting with form. Yeah, right. which which I encourage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've got so much to talk about. Uh, it's been a really busy week. I think we should just jump right into it because things are changing so fast. Let's just I get just into miss what it. To talk about. I think that's wise. Bill, I know you have something you want to talk about that's hot in the news right now. Yeah, I mean, sort of dominating the headlines is the the whole Roy Moore scandal. Um, mm-hmm. The guy who's running for Senate from Alabama. He's been accused of a whole host of sexual misconduct. It sort of ensnared big law this week because uh, an executive leader at uh, the firm of Gordon and Reese uh, resigned from her management roles at the firm this week after a sort of uproar over her appearance on a Fox News show where she said that the legitimate victims of sexual harassment are, quote, few and far between. (laughs) Okay, so everybody's following the Roy Moore story. This is something that easily could have been missed because we care about it in our legal news corner. So for those who perhaps overlooked it, just tell us straight out what, what happened here. This attorney's name is Mercedes Colwin a employment litigator at Gordon Reese who also serves as a on-air legal analyst at Fox News. She was on Sean Hannity last Thursday discussing the whole situation mm-hmm. with Moore, and she was posed this question by Hannity. And they and, got to talking, and, and things happened. went into this whole thing that now has mushroomed into, into her resignation. So we have the clip. Uh, it makes more sense to just play it than yeah. to characterize it. Mm-hmm. Do people do it for money? Do they do it for political reasons? How com- is that more common than people would think? Oh, definitely. I mean, they'll do this for... for they will for lie mo- to make money. Well, undoubtedly. I mean, there are individuals that will come forward with these outrageous allegations. And, then and that call- hurts all women that are victims. Yes. I mean, and that's why I used to work in sex crimes in the DA's office. It was very pitiful to see that because some jurors don't believe it because they have, they've gone they've, in their own lives. There are people that have made these accusations for money. You see this mm. time and time and time again. And uh, sexual Harassment, that term is, is coined everywhere. Frankly, there are the laws are very clear as to what it takes in order to be a violation of the law. You have to have some sort of damage. And these individuals, a lot of these women, it's all about money, and they and they bank on the fact that these corporations the heart, have this the is where you tread the needle because there are women that are victims of predators. Yes, there are. There are. So hard. But very few far between. Wow, guys, that's so incendiary. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a podcast where we're supposed to talk about. I, I, I. I kind of at a loss so I <laughs> yeah so let's just move on to the next step of what happened I mean I imagine the there was a lot of outcry over her characterization there right it was immediately picked up by liberal leaning websites that ran it on Thursday it was picked up by slate on Friday which really blew it up by Monday Gordon Reese managing partner Dion Caminos wrote a firm wide letter that almost immediately went on to above the law that explained that Colwyn had voluntarily resigned from both her committee role and her role as the managing partner of the firm's New York office. So what did they say about why they demoted her? Like, how did they explain it? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a, there was a lot of stock apology and yada, yada, yada. But Caminos said, quote, the firm in no way endorses or agrees with, end quote, any statement that, quote, 
which could even remotely be interpreted as minimizing or trivializing the seriousness and gravity of sexual harassment or similar predatory behaviors. What's so crazy is I I don't watch a lot of Hannity, so I wasn't watching it live, but when I, when I started to see things on Twitter that were like, lawyer says questionable thing about Roy Moore on, on Hannity, I was like, oh, it's, I mean, you can get any crackpot lawyer to say something. I thought, I thought it was yeah, from, not... from some rinky-dink shop. And then, like you say, to learn, it's from, this is like a powerhouse law firm. Right. I mean, they have 700 attorneys. Why? What? I don't understand <laughs> the upside if you're that firm of allowing, maybe, maybe they didn't have oversight or maybe, I don't know, but why, if you're that firm, if you're that firm, the, the management board of that, why are you letting and, that happen? And, and then I also thought that she would be Again, before I saw the clip, which we just heard, I thought she would be making some kind of lawyerly, innocent until proven guilty sure. thing, which is not untrue if somewhat mealy-mouthed and kind of, like I say, a lawyerly approach. But this is not that like, right, it was at all. Pretty explicit. So what did Colwyn say about this incident? She must have responded to all the uproar. Yeah. So our legal industry reporter, Andrew Strickler, who's been on the show a couple of times, he covered this for us and he uh, reached out to her and spoke to her. Um, she confirmed everything that the firm had said about her voluntarily resigning, and um, she said she didn't want her comments to, quote, present a distraction to the operations of the organization. And before that, on Monday, she went on the air again on Fox News and issued what she and the network called, quote, a clarification. I was referring to my professional experience as an attorney and judge, during which I have witnessed claims that do indeed lack merit. I was horrified when I realized that my statements could imply that the victims of harassment and abuse were, in fact, very few and far between. I mean, uh, I don't know I, if anyone remembers from about two minutes ago when we played the initial clip, the very last thing she says to Hannity is that he says there are real victims. And she says, yes, but very few and far between. <laughs> it didn't seem yeah. like anything was implicit in what she said. That's what Rather I... Rather explicit, yeah. in fact. Right. There was no inference. There was no implication. It... it, it, it it felt like she said exactly that. So it, it mm. I think this is so interesting because last week we had Strickler on the show talking about David Boyes being swept up in the Weinstein allegations. Now we've got this Gordon Reese attorney uh, with this Roy Moore stuff. So more and more attorneys are getting caught up in these big scandals. I mean, litigation is always going to follow stuff like this around. And so it stands to reason that attorneys might find sure. themselves swept up in it and you should be careful about what's being said. Well, stay tuned to the Press Day podcast, which apparently will have clips of these people every week right. until all of these scandals are done. Right. All right. So what do we want to talk about next, Alex? I want to talk about what is somehow the, like, I don't know, fourth or fifth most serious political scandal going on right now, which is a sitting senator on trial for bribery. I don't know. This is like in any other climate, we'd be talking about this all the time. I know. Everything's getting buried by just the crush of news this week. Corruption stories in, in my proud home state, though, are somewhat dime a dozen. So Yes, that's true. <laughs> but I did want to make sure we could get it on the podcast. And we had to do a little bit of racing behind the scenes because it just happened today and we, and we record on Thursdays. So... The two-month corruption trial of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez uh, ended today with a mistrial uh, after the jury failed to reach a verdict after about 10 days of deliberation. Um, and that really brings an unsatisfactory end to both sides uh, in this corruption trial. I remember us talking about this on the podcast we before. Did. Yeah, so for anybody who maybe missed that episode or hasn't been following it closely, can you just catch us up on what was happening here? The main thing at the center of the trial is Menendez's relationship with a Florida doctor whose name is Solomon Melgen. 
And the government had basically claimed that over a period of about seven years, Melgen, the doctor, had basically kept Menendez on retainer as his personal senator. He gave the senator gifts and contributions. He flew him down to his villa in the Dominican Republic and things like that. And in exchange for that, the government says that Menendez intervened on Melgen's behalf in various government proceedings to sort of curry favor uh, for his and What friend. I remember about this one is that um, Menendez didn't say, oh, I didn't do these things. He basically said, no, he's my friend and I can do stuff. Yeah, very little is under factual dispute because there's lots of paper trails for stuff like this. But the defense from start to finish was always that these guys are just friends and any gifts that he gave me is just my friend being friendly to me. And anything I was doing as a senator was just me doing what a lawmaker does, looking into areas of policy that I feel right. are appropriate for my constituents. So we're talking about a mistrial. What happened this week that that, that led to this? Well, like what happens in a lot of these cases, um, the jurors just could not reach a verdict. As I said, they started uh, deliberating on November 6th, and it never really looked like they got close. Uh, our New Jersey reporter, Bill Wickert, filed a bunch of great stories, which everybody should definitely go read on Law 360. And we actually got a unique window into the jury room because uh, one juror, a woman, was dismissed on Monday, not for anything salacious, but she had arranged to be dismissed for a prearranged vacation. She said, like, if, if the if the trial goes a certain length of time, I need to go. And a the vacation judge... to Florida. Yeah, right. And the judge agreed to that. And when she was dismissed, she was interviewed and she basically told local media, oh, yeah, like this is not they're not getting a verdict here. It's it's just nobody can make mm -hmm. any headway. So for, for what it's worth, that juror was firmly in the acquittal camp. She said she thought Menendez was getting railroaded. But that's neither here nor there in light of the mistrial. So now that we've had a mistrial, and like you said a few minutes ago, that's sort of a messy, unsatisfactory conclusion. Where does that leave the landscape of these kinds of corruption trials? The big picture here is that the, the, the shadow that looms over this case is the Supreme Court's decision uh, in June of 2016 in a corruption case that involves former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald. And that case was uh, basically cited as really restricting the ability of government prosecutors to try public corruption cases. It, you have it, to be really specific. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it narrowed the standard of activity that could be considered illicit or, mm -hmm. or corrupt by an official. And so in this context, you had Menendez intervening for Melgen in like a... It's like a Medicare fraud suit, uh, or n not a suit, but but an inquiry, uh, and then some. Melgen had some had some issues with like Dominican Republic port authorities. He also allegedly got some visas for Melgen's like girlfriends to come into the United States, and basically the McDonald decision says, you know, it's not enough for you to just kind of loosely allege that a lawmaker is 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 using his position of power. Like it needs to be in an official capacity in that person's role as a lawmaker. Right. Which people were kind of miffed by because the I mean corrupt the very nature of corruption is that it occurs on the periphery of your official sure. duties, right? right? And so basically the big takeaway here critics said when McDonald came out that the US has basically legalized corruption or made it very hard to get a conviction. And we don't really know if that's if we can be quite that alarmist yet, because these cases just don't come down the pipe very often. Mm -hmm. It's 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 not every day that a sitting this is actually the first time in many decades that a sitting US senator has been on trial for corruption. So at least in this very small sample size, we know that it was very difficult for uh, the jury to to get to a yes here, uh, or a no for that matter. And 
you know, it appears that prosecutors have quite a tough road ahead of them if they want to get a conviction in these cases. Well, thanks for bringing this to us, Alex, and putting a button on that big one we were following. Thanks. Our main story this week is the escalating war of words between Republicans and the American Bar Association over how judicial nominees are vetted. The ABA's Judicial Rating Committee has said four of President Trump's nominees aren't qualified. The GOP has fired back this week, calling the ABA a liberal advocacy group and questioning its decades-old role in picking judges. This week, we have senior reporter Michael McAnooney calling us from Capitol Hill to tell us about the battle. Welcome, Mike. Hi, glad to be here. So... We have a lot going on with this, and I just wanted to sort of set the stage about what's happened over the past week or so. Can you tell us about what the ABA Standing Committee is and what their role has been in judicial nominations? Yeah, so the Standing Committee is a subset of the American Bar Association. It's 15 lawyers who have rated judicial nominees for years, going back to the Eisenhower administration. And normally they rate them on a well-qualified, qualified or not qualified basis. And it's those four judges so far that have gotten the not qualified rating that have really set Republicans off. And to be clear, the, the, it's a pretty rare occurrence, right? This, for the most part, they approve these folks. Yes, it's really rare for any nominee to get a not qualified rating. In between 1987 and last year, there were two. So right. out of wow. hundreds of nominees. That so for for this year really does stand out. It really does. So we've heard grumblings from Republicans over the years that that the ABA is too left leaning, um, and and in this process of of helping to vet judges, um, what's sort of the gist of of what they've said in in recent weeks about you know about the ABA and about what sort of their complaints are um, that have sort of led us to this point where there's really this war of words. Well, you hit it on the head earlier. There are a number of Republicans on the committee who think that the ABA is just a liberal advocacy organization, and they've said as much. And also zeroing in on the committee itself, they've pointed out that a number of the members donate to Democratic political candidates or have publicly written about more liberal-leaning views that they say have then colored their ratings and made it more likely for them to rate Trump's nominees as not qualified. And what does the ABA say about that? I mean, the ABA, I imagine, has says that that you know that this is separate, right, from from the broader organization. They've said two things. First off, that it's separate from the broader organization, and then also that the evaluations themselves are driven by the peers of the nominee, mm-hmm. and it's really hard for bias to then creep into that. And also, before they issue a not qualified rating, they actually have somebody go back and redo all of the interviews and evaluation before they go ahead and take that step to say somebody's not qualified for a federal judgeship. Now, I don't know if we would say it's a coincidence, Mike, but this escalating criticism from Republicans has come around the same time as a lot of these not qualified ratings for Trump administration nominees. We hinted that there have been four in, in, in recent weeks. I wanted to talk about a couple of those specifically, first up uh, being the nomination of Steve Grass. Uh, can you tell us who he is and, uh, and, what, and what came of his, of his nomination? Sure. So Steve Grass is currently an Eighth Circuit nominee. He's a senior counsel at Hutch Blackwell. Mm -hmm. 
and he is the long he was the longtime chief deputy attorney general for the state of Nebraska. And some of the cases that he defended there, particularly a uh, law on partial birth abortion in the 1990s, as well as some law review articles that he wrote on partial birth abortion, have been the subject of some criticism. Now, the ABA has said that its rating of not qualified was based on his temperament, uh, saying that he would not be able to separate his views on these issues from the the law as it stands. Mm-hmm. On the other side, Republicans like Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska has called it political character assassination, basically saying that they're rating him not qualified because of those views. Uh, the other big news that came out last week was regarding the nomination of Brett Talley, which veered into some pretty colorful territory for uh, for people for for judicial watchdogs and people who care about this stuff. Talk us through that. Yeah. So aside from all of the other headlines about Brett Talley and whether he disclosed his marriage to a White House counsel to the committee and uh, some of his online postings, the ADA rated him not qualified for his lack of trial experience and also just the amount of time he's been a lawyer. Normally they look for about 12 years of being an attorney, whereas he graduated from law school and passed the bar only about 10 years ago. Hmm. And since then, only a small amount of that time, he's actually been a practicing attorney. And and I appreciate you uh, offering a tease because we're going to talk about Brett Talley a little later in the show, <laughs> but that is pretty remarkable. I mean, I, know, I mean, by the nature of judicial nominations, not like some hard and fast criteria. For, I mean, guys, yeah. it, I've been a lawyer longer than <laughs> Brett Talley, so... I would like to nominate you to be a judge. <laughs> I accept the nomination. Unfortunately, I don't have that power. Yeah, right. And the ABA would probably mark me unqualified for the reasons we're talking about here. It's it's just such a short amount of time. Yeah, right. So, Mike, uh, that sort of brings us to this week. Um, you know, it's been sort of this escalating situation what all happened this week? I mean, we saw the White House get involved. We saw uh, a big Capitol Hill hearing that I know you covered. Walk us through the events of this week that have put us to here. Yeah, so the the concerns about the ABA have been building for a few weeks because normally the ABA will testify about a nominee when they give a not qualified rating. But they weren't available when uh, Stephen Grass was testifying in his confirmation hearing. So they came a few weeks later now to testify about the grass rating and also defend their process from some pretty sharp criticism from members of the Republican side. Uh, And on top of that, the White House has also talked about potentially pushing the American Bar Association out of the vetting process entirely, asking nominees not to take interviews with the evaluators, asking them not to give waivers, to give access to their disciplinary records, things like that. Uh, And that comes on top of the steps that the White House has already taken earlier this year, because normally the American Bar Association has been able to start vetting nominees before their name. Mm-hmm. And most presidential administrations have done that, but now Trump is taking a cue from President George W. Bush and not letting the ABA have access until after they've been publicly made. So that really sets the stage about the climate right now. But you were in the room for this pretty contentious hearing. So can you give us some highlights about what some of the GOP members of Congress were saying? 
Yeah, so many of the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee are really not fans of the uh, Bar Association process, and they're really not fans of the committee and the way it is conducted itself. Um, both Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Ben Sass called the ABA a liberal advocacy organization, and that's former Law Three Hundred and Sixty rising star Ted Cruz. That's 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 how style <laughs> yeah, around here. Yeah. But yes, sorry. Continue, Mike. Yes, for, former Law Three Hundred and Sixty rising star Senator Ted. Well, well Cruz. It's, it's like the Marines. Uh, like once you're a rising star, I think you're. I mean, he's risen. I think, right? Yeah, I don't know. definitely. Yeah, I, I I think most people would say he's risen, not as far as he might like. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an issue for another podcast. But sorry, I got you off track yeah. there, Mike. Yeah. So they they did a lot of complaining about the ABA. I imagine. Yes, they did. And they also zeroed in on how the ABA had its process and what questions it was asking Grass. Um, and the ABA has defended itself and actually disputed some of the things that Grass said about their interviews, which to hear both sides tell it at, at certain points did get pretty confrontational. Um, Grass had said that you know, the evaluators asked about his personal views about abortion, about whether he had sent his kids to a private Lutheran school, mm. and uh, also that they had referred to conservatives as you people several times <laughs> wow. during the discussion. So now, what, what the did evaluators, ABA, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. What did ABA say in response to that? Well, they, they in typical fashion, disputed that. They said that things didn't quite go as Grass had portrayed it, um, for one thing, they talked about uh, him sending his children to Lutheran school because he'd already disclosed to the committee that he was on the board of that school. And they asked, why are you on the board of that school? And whether all of his children went there or whether he was uh, on the board for any other school. He was trying to get broader context to that answer. Yes. They, yeah. they were saying that some of those comments were taken out of context or they came to them by other means rather than asking directly about his personal views or, you know, where he sends his kids to school. My favorite part of this whole episode, which we haven't actually talked about yet, and then we can get out of here, uh, the Wall Street Journal Ed Board apparently weighed in on this and came out on the side of carving the ABA out of the process, and the White House saw fit to just paste the entire text yeah. of that editorial out and send it out as like a formal White House statement, which was a very funny mail to receive. I think that was yesterday. Yeah, and that wasn't the only one. There was also a New York Post editorial that they sent out as a White House statement saying pretty similar things. So it sounds like what we've established here is that the ABA is entrenched in saying that they should be a part of this process like they always have been. The GOP really hates that, and they're coming out strongly against it. Where does that leave us for the nominees we've talked about and the additional nominees that are coming down the pike from the Trump administration as we move forward? Well, as far as I know, the nominees are still cooperating with the ABA, and it's not as though a rating of not qualified has hurt a nominee so far. Now, none of the not qualified nominees have actually been confirmed yet, but all of those who have come up for a committee vote have been sent to the full Senate, and I don't think there's any indication that they're going to stop advancing those nominees and getting them onto the federal bench just because an organization they don't like said that they're not good judges. Given how long the the ABA has been doing this, it, it'll it'll be interesting to see going forward, you know, how far this goes. We've got presumably another three years of the Trump presidency, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to see what the ABA can do here to reassert their 
you know, if they just say it we're is not just a recommendation, after right? All. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, they had this position there, and everyone trusted it, but. It's hard for them to reinsert themselves, it seems like. Yeah, thanks for coming on today, Mike. It was really good to get the broad outlines of this big debate. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And this week, we had such a good time talking to Mike, but there were some really interesting details about one of these judicial nominees. I think we want to bat those around a little. Yes. We don't like to double up on stories too much, but there was so much good content about our friend Brett Talley, who's been nominated uh, by President Trump to be a, a judge in Alabama. In addition to all the stuff that Mike talked about, about these being married to a high-ranking White House lawyer and things like that, some more lighthearted stuff came out about... Uh, putative judge tally do tell us it it came out that in his spare time over the past several years including as recently as this year tally has been spending time on tidefans.com which is a, a message board for the alabama crimson tide college football team know it well and so you know if if was he just talking football? Because that seems kind of dull. Early internet adopters will tell you that college football message boards are among the most desolate places on the internet, <laughs> where the topic at hand is nominally college football, but often veers into other corners uh, of discussion. And this came out, uh, BuzzFeed was actually the first one to report it. Uh, turns out Tally was talking politics on here, and he did not disclose this as like a public writing uh, in his in his disclosure forms uh. with the Senate Judiciary uh. Committee. And he did some things that you might expect on a message board that focuses on Alabama sports. After the Newtown shooting in 2012, he was starting to talk about how we shouldn't depend on the government to protect us, and we should be ready to protect ourselves, things like that. He talked about immigration a little bit. So that was sort of a weird thing that came out. Immigration on a college football message board? I mean, I'm not, I didn't look at the whole thread, wow. but you can imagine how they might get there. Sure. Uh, anyway, so that wasn't disclosed. I he's got bigger disclosure problems on his, on his hands. The right. White House has said, you know, we're talking, in that context, the committee wants to know about public, you know, public writings and right. so speeches they wanted, they I've given. Not like every time I log onto a computer. Right. Not like every time I log onto a computer and write something, I'm on the hook for that. On an even lighter note, though, and this is not something that was ever hidden. This has been on publicly available websites <laughs> for a long time. Uh, one thing that Judge Tally, well, not Judge yet, but one thing that Tally did disclose was his membership in the Tuscaloosa Paranormal Research Group. Whoa. Oh, That's right. He's a ghost right. hunter. Well, I don't know. I mean, some websites have called him a ghost hunter. That's kind of like, like how many cakes do you bake before you're a baker kind of thing. Oh, sure. From what he, I could he's tell. He's an amateur ghost hunter. From what then. I could tell, he's been on at least one ghost hunt. And okay. I don't know if that gets you in. Well, did he catch any ghosts? Uh, unclear, to be honest. Uh, but in addition to, and I guess if you're in the group that does it, you're kind of in. Yeah. Right? I wonder if he goes after squatches too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But that's not it. His interest in ghosts and hunting them. Uh, has has also led him into the world of writing fiction, specifically oh. horror fiction. Hmm. I was talking with Strickler about this, actually. Sure. He was looking into this, and I was like, where did you find this stuff? It's on his personal website, Tally's. <laughs> oh, not... so it's like not even hidden at all. Yeah, it's just I very mean, clear. A Andrew's a great reporter, but that was on me for not knowing that. Tallyitup.net. <laughs> I did want to read. I do always love when people in government have literary careers or like want to be literary. It's like one of my very favorite things. So I thought it would be good for us to read a passage. This is, again, 
this is from a story. It's on his website uh, called "The Wind Passes Like a Fire." No. And this is apparently this is apparently a horror story and not a memoir about farting. Great. Glad uh, for the clarification. So like, the wind <laughs> the wind passes like a fire. When the wind comes to Los Angeles, it blows dry and hot. It creeps up quietly, sneaking up behind you like a thief or an old friend. Sometimes it tickles your senses, caresses your neck. Other times it hits hard, like a slap in the face. It brings the smell of heat, the taste of dust. So, <laughs> Guys, this well, just gives us a look at what everybody's in for if he does get confirmed and starts writing opinions and we're reading them really painting at a picture with words there what alex wasn't disclosing there is that the alternative uh <laughs> title for it was just silent but deadly <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i would also like to point out that earlier i made a joke about how i've been barred longer than he has but i do have a half finished novel wow so oh, now i mm. feel like i better keep that to well, myself amber, so that someday no, amber, i'm not made fun of on a podcast there's a very right. low bar for you to clear here because his 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 fiction writing i don't think will pose any ethical problems it does however pose some literary problems because if i can editorialize for a second this is crap writing in my <laughs> in my opinion wow really uh, piling on he's apparently he's apparently been nominated for some awards i don't know what kind of grift he's running there but it's uh the I mean, annual roll tide dot are you or whatever the, uh, the the website he was on? So yeah, that's just a little insight into our friend uh, Brett Talley. Wow, uh, it's been a good show, guys. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. I'd like to thank our producers for today's show, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our guest, Michael McInerney. Contributing reporters this week were Andrew Strickler and Bill Wickert. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to hear more about anything we've talked about in the show today, check out our website at law360.com podcast. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.